And to your point, felt there was much more acceptance, particularly of junior individuals speaking up, giving their opinion. So I'm experiencing that we don't have a rapport going on here. That's what I feel is going on here. But I have no clue what's going on for you. You do bounce back quicker. That's what the two percenters do. It, like, it rains on two percenters. Their, their train gets cancelled. Their football team loses as well. But they have these, as you alluded to, like you've learned not to let it get you down. This is a, a different version of you to what it used to be 10 years ago because you've learned the strategies right, to let it wash over you a little bit. So I'm not like pointing to the fact that the world is fantastic. I can't make the Derby County win. I can't make the sunshine. I can't make the buses run on time. But what positive psychology does give me is a bit more control over me. right? And the truth is, if I can be my best self, even when Derby County lose at home, that's the bit I can control. I can't control anything else. I can control me. That's it. End of. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. We're going to have a happy and hopefully a rather brilliant episode today because I'm joined by someone who specializes in positive psychology and the science of human flourishing. He spent 12 years in hard academic labor before gaining the UK's first ever Doctor of Happiness PhD at Loughborough University. He's the author of many books, too many even for him to count when I asked him how many, and not just books for the adults, but children's books as well. If you ask your seven-year-old, you may find out how famous he actually is. But for the bigger kids, he's written books such as The Art of Being Brilliant, and leadership, the multiplier effect, as I say, among many others. So I'm expecting a happy, a brilliant, a fun conversation, and probably quite wide ranging with Dr. Andy Cope. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thanks, fella. That's quite a big intro. Yeah, I'm wildly famous if you're about seven. I mean, that's (laughs) that's an intro you've never had before on this podcast. Well, listen, take any fame you can. It's just the the red carpets are a little bit stickier at that age. Let, let, okay, I, I gave you this introduction saying that you became the UK's first ever doctor of happiness. How does that happen? Yeah, I am self-aware enough to understand it sounds faintly ridiculous, by the way. But I always, my gag is, well, it's better than Dr. Feelgood, which is the alternative, which is a bit creepy. So the doctor of happiness thing, I studied psychology many years ago. And if you think about it, psychology has always been about illness, phobias, disorders, anxiety, depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, trauma is the one coming through at the moment. And what I realized that for 150 years of psychology, it's always been predicated on illness and disease and what's wrong with you trying to fix people. And yet, if you think about it, 150 years of psychology, mental ill health is getting worse, not better. So what I realized in 2005, when I was doing my PhD is that pretty much traditional psychologists have never ever studied people who are already feeling happy. Like there's a small percentage, everybody listening to this podcast, you can all think of in your life, maybe a, a handful of people actually in your life who've got something extra, whether it's an extra energy, an extra positivity, an extra spring in their step. In the workplace, these are your work colleagues who go the extra mile. You've not got to ask them 10 times. It seems built in. They rock up at a meeting with an open mind and a willingness to try new stuff and, oh, well, let's give it a go. It's that sort of optimistic, positive vibrant aliveness really and these, these people aren't ill so they don't go to the doctor so we've ignored them for 150 years 
So while the rest of psychology continues to look at illness, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, therapy, counselling, meds, all very important, I decided to flip it on its head and basically look at wellness. So three questions, who are the people who are already happy? Which is kind of quite counterintuitive, like who are the people who aren't ill? Secondly, what are they doing that allows them to flourish? And thirdly, most importantly, I think that we're probably going to chat about is what could we then learn from them that we could apply to us? So we might also have that spring in our step. And I think, mate, honestly, like in the world, I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but as we're recording this, the world is brutal. It's fast. It's furious. It's unforgiving. It's relentless. And there's a lot of burnout. It's almost like the world is doing its worst, which is why I think it's even more important than ever that positive psychology is about how to be at your best, I think, against the odds. That that sort of goes alongside the thinking that with our medical services, we spend spend so much time thinking about how to make people better rather than focusing on how to keep them well. Is it, is it a similar philosophy to that? You know, Desmond Tutu died a few years ago and he died yeah. around Christmas time and there's all these eulogies on the TV because a great man's passed away. Everybody's told the same Desmond Tutu story. You might have heard it, but I'm not Desmond, but I'll tell it. <laughs> his story he talks about a man standing by a river a raging river whitewater river and he's just watching the water flow by and then the, he hears some screaming upstream and he looks upstream and there's a person bobbing up and down in the river waving their arms like help me help me i'm drowning i'm drowning so the guy like wades into the river yanks the person out coughing and spluttering on the on the river bank he saved him and then no losing he saved one there's a there's a woman this time he's like help me help me i'm drowning so he's in again he's dragging this woman out now, there's two of them on the side, and then there's a teenager. Help me, I'm drowning, help me. So he's wading in for a third time. And Desmond Tutu kind of tells this story, and then he delivers a punchline like only Desmond Tutu can. But essentially, he says, there comes a point where we need to stop wading into the river and rescuing people, and we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. And that's, I think, the difference between traditional psychology is yanking people out of the river. We're waiting for people to feel broken and in despair, and then we'll step in and spend a massive amount of money on trying to save people. Positive psychology is upstream. It's like being your own first aider, your own lifeguard, putting your own life jacket on, because there's a lot of white water out there, mate. You know what I mean? Is there's, We're back to that fast and furious life and the pace of things. And I think positive psychology equips you with necessarily knowledge and skills that you can take good care of your own mental health and well-being so when the white water does come which it will is that you might not need somebody else to save you you can save yourself i'm gonna dig into this a little bit deeper in a second but before i do just a slight diversion didn't i see somewhere that you slept in desmond tutu's bed or something <laughs> hey, come on, I, i've, I've got to ask that story I've, me and Desmond I, go back a long way. I was um, going to say, was he there? Did he know? <laughs> <laughs> did he know? Yeah, did he even notice? Uh, yeah, it's, it's not that an interesting story, really. But I, we alluded to the fact I'm famous if you're about seven or eight. I got invited to do the Hay Book Festival. It's quite a big deal, actually, but a few years ago. And in Hay, because Hay is like a little village in the middle of Wales that comes alive with the book festival. Like thousands of people descend on it. It's got no hotels. So with the authors, I was one of the guest authors. Quite a, quite an honour to get invited to Hay. You get to stay in local people's houses. And I happened to be staying in this house in the same bed that Desmond Tutu had stayed in the night before. There you go. <laughs> That's my Desmond oh, Tutu story. So there I have actually go. slept in Desmond Tutu's bed. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> and I've been, I've been to Hay Festival, but not as an invited author yet. Okay. <laughs> so let's go back to, to the positive psychology. 
you, you, you talk about studying happiness and studying the people that do go the extra mile, that do go into meetings with an open mind and seeing what we can learn from. What are the key factors that, that those people have in common? Is there something in upbringing, in background that makes people more likely to have that positive mindset? Is it something that people decide for themselves? I mean, does it run yeah. through their childhood and beyond or do um, they just make a conscious helps, decision? It helps if you've got positive parents and a positive upbringing, it massively helps. But pretty much what I was looking at without getting too technical and boring people with a PhD is what I call intentional strategies. So the people that I was interviewing, they're all significantly happier than average and they've got bag, bags more energy. So I call them two percenters now. So we, again, I don't want to go too much into the science, but if you graph people, you put people on a graph of well-being, is that what happens is far too often in the workplace, we nestle snugly into the bottom third. It's like we're looking forward to the holidays. We're counting down to Friday. Work's called work for a reason, right? They pay you to be there. And the vast majority of people, if they didn't pay you, you wouldn't be there. You'd rather be somewhere else. That's the truth. So what happens is, call it the curse of mediocrity, or slightly low-level kind of you know going through the motions version of us but when you put them on the graph there's a small percentage that i nicknamed the two percenters because statistically there's not many of them but they're at the top end of the well-being chart so they're like not only they've got more energy more happiness they they're the ones with these all these extra mile behaviors that we talk about in business like we want people to go the extra mile and the two percenters are the ones who it's built into them this extra mile stuff so and what I was looking at is what are their learned behaviors? So not necessarily their upbringing and their parents and all that, although that does help, but essentially it's a set of behaviors and characteristics they've got in common, mostly between your ears. So being a 2% of being that, essentially being the best version of yourself is if you boil it down into common parlance is pretty much learned rather than innate. You could take someone who's the most pessimistic, miserable person on the planet and you could turn them into a positive you or could, they could turn themselves into they a positive. Could they, could learn, they could learn some some very simple principles that would massively improve their odds of of being positive, or at least get them out of being negative so often. The issue with negativity, mate, because the bottom of the diagram, I used to call the mood hoovers. Uh, bearing in mind, I used to be one because I didn't know any of this. You know, I grew up. You know, I went to uni and I studied loads of psychology at uni, and it was always illness. Every single lecture I ever attended was named after an illness. It's sort of like as if I never attended a psychology lecture on happiness or well-being or how to feel amazing it was always like let's have a look at why we're not feeling amazing so actually it's quite a massive swing of psychology to look at people who are already buzzing with life and energy these two percenters so who are they what are they doing what can we learn from them is a big deal but it is a learned behaviors and it's all very simple and the mood hoovers are, are interesting because we talk about toxic positive again it, the language is all over the place right so when I started to it, let's go back to 2005, do my PhD, because nowadays in modern language, we've got this toxic positivity. So you can be too happy. You can be too in people's faces. And I understand that. I'm not advocating jazz hands or happy clappy or fake anything. But we never talk about toxic negativity. But that's the truth. Right? It only really takes one mood hoover in your team, one person grumbling, and then everybody's grumbling. It's like, yeah, we are overworked and underpaid. And if you're not careful, in places like the NHS and education where it's full on and it's quite exhausting, it's quite easy to get ground down and just become part of the low-level grumble. So I think it's switching people out of that mode, and that's pretty much your default position. Human beings are quite negative creatures. We're built with negativity bias in our DNA. We're looking for problems. We're looking for things that might go wrong all the time. 
but flipping that into that best version of you is about a, a consistent set of habits and, and some key simple learnable principles really i want to come back to the impact of other people around you in a moment i want to focus for a second just on the mindset you take into it and look i i can't resist this it's a bit of a cheeky one i wasn't going to go there but it is relevant to the conversation before we we started recording we were talking and we discovered that which football team each other supports and my team beat your team last night and i am very happy about that because it's our first win since november it's been a very, very long run. But the reason I raise it is that if I go back probably 10 years or more, a bad result for my team could ruin my week and it would really affect my mood and my temper. And I still see friends and I see other people, particularly around Twitter, for whom it clearly has a huge impact on their psyche, what happens over 90 minutes on a football pitch. That doesn't bother me anymore. I'm rarely in a bad mood, even as I leave the ground. You know, I can put it behind me and I can just focus on other things. So that was a, a, a positive conscious mindset shift in me over a decade ago, however long ago it was, to not let that impact me elsewhere. But how easy is it to let things over which we have no control and don't have a real genuine impact on our lives? to affect how we go about other things and how do we shift that mindset so that we can be more positive and let it roll off our back as you I'm sure are doing today <laughs> well as a as a Derby County fan mate I uh, well I feel like we should cut this right now because you've just upset me about reminding me of last <laughs> night's result and the truth is I want to feel down sometimes I think it's perfect I wouldn't want to be celebrating a home loss and going out of the stadium going, whoa, that was great. We lost 2-1 at home. It was Charlton's first win in 23 games. Bully for them. 18. You know, 18. 18. <laughs> All right, yeah. Great. I'm really pleased for the Charlton fans. I was really disappointed last night, right? And you were elated. But the thing is, it's exactly the same game. You're watching the same thing and having two different experiences. And I think what you alluded to a couple of minutes ago is your ability to not let that get you down for as long. I do want to be down about it for a little while but I don't want it to ruin my week. And, and 20 years ago, that would ruin my week, right? I was stomping around the house, not talking to my wife. She's got nothing to do with it. It's nothing to do with her. <laughs> but so I think positive psychology, what it does is bad things happen to everybody, right? And I've said like Derby losing home isn't really a bad thing, but it does. The real committed football fans will understand how much it does hurt actually. But you do bounce back quicker. That's what the two percenters do. It's like it rains on two percenters that their train gets cancelled, their football team loses as well. But they have these, as you alluded to, right? You've learned not to let it get you down. This is a, a different version of you to what it used to be 10 years ago because you've learned the strategies, right? To let it wash over you a little bit. So I'm not like pointing to the fact that the world is fantastic. I can't make the Derby County win. I can't make the sunshine. I can't make the buses run on time. But what positive psychology does give me is a bit more control over me, right? And the truth is, if I can be my best self, even when Derby County lose at home, then I will. That's the bit I can control. I can't control anything else. I can control me. That's it. End of. Yeah. And that's, I think, very much my point is, is focusing on what you can control rather than what you can't. There is something that you mentioned there that I want to pick up on as well. And that is you co-authored a book and I'm going to come to it at the end. You co-authored a book with a mutual friend of ours, good friend of mine, uh, who's been on the podcast, Paul McGee. The book was The Happiness Revolution. Now, Paul 
has a concept which I included in my book, Just Ask. I talked about it in Just Ask, called Hippo Time, mm-hmm. which is the time to wallow, allowing yourself that time to not be happy, to let the, the negative things wash over you for a while, as long as you come out of that. That's really what you're alluding to there, isn't it? To be, it's okay to be down. It, it sounds a bit cliche, doesn't it? Doctor of happiness, it's okay to not be okay. But it's not a cliche. If, you know, tracking the well-being of people over lots of years, you'll find even the most committed, positive human beings on the planet will have downtime. All right. So happiness isn't, there's an old English word, 17th century word, a grinagog. You can be too happy. A grinagog is somebody who's so happy you want to punch the lights out. You know what I mean? And I'm not asking, advocating anybody to come in on Monday with jazz hands because that's inappropriate. It's like just emotionally tone deaf. But I think it's, well, we're back to that bouncing back. But yeah, Paul talks about hippo time. Have a wallow, get it out of your system, but bounce back stronger, take the learning, move on. So it's all classic, classic stuff, really. But Paul just has a really smart way of talking about hippo time because everybody connects with that. But I mean, my technical term for having a, a, you know, it's called being human. We all have downtime. In fact, when I run my workshops, I've got a graph of, I show somebody with emotions all over the place and they go, well... Is that a two percenter? And actually it is over six months, but not on that week. They're having a really tough week. And the, we're back to what I started with. The world is thrown as a lot of those weeks. The world is, you know, your work's being restructured. You're not getting a pay rise above inflation. The bills have gone up. You know, it's conspiring against us at the moment. I was in a school the other week. There's kids at age eight on anxiety medication, mate. And now that doesn't sit right with me. There's something not right about the toxic environment that we're and it's not just kids, it's, it's adults as well. Enhance your mentoring skills with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring by Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian. Secure your copy early by pre-ordering today on Amazon or your preferred bookseller. I, I want to pick up on that. So I, I still want to come back to this question about other people's role, but that's a really important point. That is worrying when you talk about kids of the age of eight on, on medication. We have a culture where we I think positively overall are a lot more open about mental health and we're a lot more accepting of conditions like depression and people recognize and diagnose that more quickly. There is perhaps a concern. I'm not aware of the research. I'm not close enough to it. It, It's an observation from me. It's a question I have about whether we're too quick to self-diagnose things that may not actually be depression. But do you think that we have shifted that there is a negative side to that positive openness about about how we feel now and people are too quick to go on medication for example yeah yeah you got to choose your words carefully here fella because in case we upset people but i think we're talking it up where there is a danger that we've talked up mental health to the point whereby everybody has got something (laughs) you know what i i won't say which city it was but a major uk city i did a session with all the psychiatrists there's about 300 psychiatrists like super well qualified shrinks you might call them and they said and again i won't say where it was but their feedback to me was there are so many people coming through the system with having a bad week and i've got a bit of a worry thinking they've got anxiety that it's crowding out those who genuinely have so there are people like literally at their wits end who who are feeling suicidal who cannot get an appointment because everybody is wanting an appointment and they're crowded out and it's, are we talking that up? We're back to Desmond Tutu going upstream. If instead of trying to just fix people all the time, in fact, everybody listening to this, if you've got a child with mental health issues, try getting an appointment at the health, and you won't get one for six months or 12 months because we're so busy. 
trying to fix people. Upstream, positive psychology. If we knew about well-being, self-care, and we took it seriously, and we equipped people with the right skills, then there will be less demand. There will be less people suffering because they'd know how to. And it'd be cheaper. I mean, imagine the mental health people putting themselves out of work because everybody's trained up in how to be a mental. I call it mental wealth, moving into that territory above mental health, into when you're buzzing with life and vitality and you feel you can take on the world. Almost whatever the world throws at you, the best version of you, you can deal with that. So, and let me just be clear that overall, I think it's a really positive thing that we are able to have these conversations and we're able to talk about depression and mental well-being or, or ill health in an open way, which we couldn't before. And I think that we repressed it too much in the past. So I am very careful about not calling people out for making things up. But I do think that perhaps in some cases, people are too quick to self-diagnose. Yeah, that's, I'm not sure we're even making it up. There. I think the external world is convincing us we have got something wrong. We don't yeah. think we're making yeah. it up. We genuinely yeah. think we have. Yeah. And how many older people like of, of my generation, in fact, one of my own work colleagues, is, what is he, a little bit older than me, he's gone and got himself diagnosed with ADHD now. He's nearly 60, right? I mean, he's great, he's, he's great but he's like seeking this certificate this label this oh yeah now i've got it i thought i had it when i was a kid and now i know i've got it who's like we're seeking it out and i go well what do you want to know for you're a perfectly brilliant functioning human being age 60 you don't need to know this you've worked out how to work how to use it in your favor your adhd has been a superpower you means you've had more energy you've had more creativity in your life than most normal people but he's anyway seeking the label it, it is an interesting one because i i know a number of people who are certainly in their 40s and beyond, who have done the same thing recently, but almost con uh, consistently they're saying, this is a weight off my shoulders because now I, I understand what's been going on. So I think there are two sides to that, yeah. but there is a point there as well. Let's go to that role that other people can play in terms of helping us with mental well-being, helping us be happy, be positive, be, be strong contributors. You talked earlier about the the drains and, and the radiators and and i think you particularly mentioned the drains the people that drain the energy from you so i would say when i've looked at the statistics about roughly half of our listeners are in the us and roughly half are in the uk it's not that simple because there are other uh, listeners around the world as well but there is a good split of the majority of listeners come from the us and the uk now in the us the culture tends to be one of supporting positivity you know let's cheerlead let's get behind each other let's encourage let's support in the uk the culture and, and certainly the stereotype of the culture is to turn our, our our lip into a sneer at the thought of that and we see that as too american too rah-rah and anyone coming into a workplace exuding positivity is almost asked to tone it down have you seen those cultural differences? And also, how can we support people and encourage that positivity in a way that fits the culture that we work in? Yeah, wow. That's a long question, mate. My research is in the UK, so I'm not absolutely yeah. sure about the Americans. I know there are international lead tables of happiness, which is quite interesting. And the top few are always Scandinavian countries. The UK, I think last time I looked, we were about 17th. And I think the US were about 15th. So, yeah. You know, 
Uh, are the Americans really any happier than the Brits? Not really, although they do have a culture that sort of does seem a bit to the Brits, a little bit in your face. They have a nice day. And I think that sort of have a nice day culture is sometimes said through gritted teeth. In fact, the types of smile is interesting. Speaking about Americans, there's a Pan-American smile. It's named after the airline Pan Am that's now defunct. But when you were an American airline, right, when, when you worked at Pan Am, apparently you had to smile. So it's like a, a directive from the leaders. You'll put that uniform on and you will smile all the way from Heathrow to JFK, right? So what, as a passenger, what you got was this, the, you know, the, the steward or stewardess would wheel the trolley up going, you know, chicken or beef or vegetarian. It was, a, it, was, it was this fake thing where your mouth turned up at the corners, but there's nothing else. It was a total fake thing. I've got to smile because in case my boss is looking type thing. But they didn't really mean it and it didn't come across as genuine. But the, the opposite of that is what we call the Duchenne. So a Duchenne smile is a beautiful heartfelt grin. It's like a beam that lights up your whole face. So not only does the, your face go north, but you get these little crow's feet here and your eyes are sparkling. And the that best version of you, that 2% version of you, you've got about 40% more chance of having a genuine grin on your face, not a fake douche and let's get through the day and pretend, but this genuine thing. And I think that I, I don't know whether, it, whether it's American or British, I'm talking about genuinely being that best version of you. And if you, you are that, you're likely to smile genuinely by 40% more. And that is contagious. Well, let's go back to the contagion thing. Again, let's, let's pick on some American research. Um, I think it's Nick Christakis and, and Nick Christakis and Fowler. They wrote a really good book. I think it's called Connected. And they cite, I mean, it's off the top of my head, so it might not be exactly right. Something like your well-being and your happiness will create a ripple effect. It will reach three degrees of people removed from you, right? And the numbers are something like 16%, 10%, and 6%. So if I give you an example, if you rock up at work in best self mode, Everybody you come into direct contact with during that day is going to be a minimum of 16% happier because they've caught your well-being. So let's assume you rock up, you're the leader, you go to a meeting, you chair your meeting, you run your Monday morning meeting, everybody, and you're in a good place. So everybody in that meeting is now 16% happier, but it doesn't stop there, right? So all those, all your team members go out visiting clients. So because they're 16% happier, they go to a meeting with the client. The clients are now 10% happier. You're not at that meeting, but you're the one who kicked it off. But it doesn't even stop there, mate, right? So those clients then are 10% happier. They go home to their families, and their families are 6% happier, right? So what you've done, this is, a, you know, you as an individual running a, a really positive meeting has uplifted everybody by 16%. Everybody they met have then been uplifted by 10%, and the families have been uplifted by 6%. And I think that's huge. The fact that we are emotionally contagious, that's where my PhD really went, I wasn't really looking at happiness. I was looking at what I call flourishing. Flourishing is that state of when your happiness and well-being is bigger than you. So all the people that you can think of in that 2% mode, the reason you're thinking of them as 2 percenters is because when they're around, you feel uplifted as well, right? So this is the flourishing is that, sure, being your best self is good for you, but it's bigger than you. You can't contain it. It leaks out of you and creates these upward spirals of emotion in the people around you. That's the flourishing effect that I was looking for in my PhD. And that's super powerful because I think that's leadership, it's parenting, it's an emotional contagion. It's it's huge. It, it makes absolute sense if you think about it in practical terms. It works the other way as well, I'm sure, that if you come in with a foul mood, that's contagious in the same way. So we have to think about the impact of the mood we're in on people around us. And me, how that, yeah, okay. Can I pick up ripples? on that, mate? I'll pick up yeah. on that very quickly. 
again, let's go American. Dan, Daniel Goleman is the uh, emotional intelligence guy. So I also wrote a book about it because his, his was a bit complicated for me. But one of the concepts he talks about is emotional soup. Dead simple, which is why I like it. An emotional soup basically says that in any social situation where people are thrown together, then basically everybody's having a say in the flavor of the soup. Now, I like that. It's so obvious, right? But that, like, in that meeting at work, everybody's having a say in the flavor of that meeting, whether it turns out well or not. Everybody's having an input. And when you get home to your family after work, you're all having a say in the flavor of your family soup. All right. So now there's two Daniel Goleman questions that come out of that. The first one is obviously what flavors am I adding? You know, am I adding positivity and happiness and kindness and gratitude and compassion? Or in the modern world, am I accidentally adding stressed up to the eyeballs and anxious about the next meeting? And, or, and, and the, but the second question I think is the one that, that leads into what this podcast is all about. Daniel Goldman says, who has the biggest say in the flavor of the workplace soup or the team soup? And it's always the leader. All right. So everybody's having a flavor, but the leader is having a more than proportionate impact on the flavor of the soup. And most people listening to this podcast, you are a leader or you're a parent. So it's like daring to point the finger back at yourself and saying, okay, I need to step up and get the flavors right. <laughs> Not just saving it for good soup on Friday when everybody's happy anyway. It's how can we bring those great flavors, that best version of ourselves to work on a wet Monday you know, when you're not really feeling it. So I think we're back to emotional contagion and understanding that you cannot not have an impact. Let's reverse your question. Let's talk about how other people help you. And if it's the lead, right, if it's the leader that is the mood hoover, then Houston, we have a problem. If it's you're the one adding the bad flavors, then your team, the soup is pretty sour. You've led us nicely into leadership and you've written the mate multiplier effect. One of the things that you say in there, is that you think we get current leadership think leadership thinking gets it so wrong. So we're actually starting from the wrong place. Where are we getting it wrong? And what are the steps we need to take to, to just create a different environment in the workplace that, that well, leads to the sort of things we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We do a whole different separate webinar just on a podcast, <laughs> sorry, just on where we're going wrong. I mean, I think there's so many things that are just don't work now that used to work pre-pandemic and and now years on it's we still get try I went in a workplace the other day and they're trying to get back to how they were before the pandemic I'm going you don't want to get back to there it's not there anymore it's the rules have changed we've moved on you know I, I I've been binge listening to your back catalog absolutely brilliant Dave Heiner right and his like smart objectives he's blowing them out of water and he's absolutely right that's something that we're doing wrong a smart object, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. Realistic and time, realistic and achievable. I can't think of any major human breakthrough in humankind that would ever have been achieved with a smart objective. So I'm with Dave, but let's get rid of them, right? It, how uninspiring is it? In, but we still do it. Like, you know, your objective for the sales team for this year is do what you did last year plus 2%. Can we add 2% onto that? Right. That's smart, but it's not very inspiring. Smart is a huge, unbelievably great goal is let's add 50 percent. What are we going to do to absolutely smash it out of the water? And that's exciting. And it's like, I don't know what the answer is to that. But you get your team to co-create that culture where that's possible. And that's out of the ballpark. The other one is leaders thinking that I've got to inspire my teams. I've got to inspire my people. I think, again, let go of that. That's too much. It's like a yoke around your neck. Your job as a leader is to be inspired. My research shows if you can get that bit right, then every, the insp inspiring everybody else will take care of itself. But it starts with you. And the other, uh, fixing people, 
I've do an appraisal and send people on courses that plug their weaknesses. Oh, hashtag yawn. I mean, come on. You're going to get much more bang for your buck out of t- sending somebody on a course that they're already good at, right? And maximizing their strengths. So it's all kind of seems obvious for where I'm sitting, but I go in, as you do, going to organizations day after day. They're still doing smart objectives. They're still sending people on courses to plug the gaps. They're still company values. Don't get me started about company values, right? How many organizations have I been in where the company values are, are printed on the wall and all over the web? Nobody lives company values. Nobody cares about, we live our own values, all right? So I think there's so many things that we're just tripping ourselves upon. And I think often leadership is about get out of your people's way. Nobody wants to come to work feeling down and and demoralized and wanting to do a bad job. But quite often the organization creates the environment where that happens. So it's about getting out out the way and letting them shine, letting them rock up as their best self. Yeah, sorry, it was a bit of a rant, but there's so many things that I could just talk all day about. Things I see, big mistakes being made, old style thinking that doesn't apply in 2024. I don't apologize. I love a good rant, and there was a lot that I can agree with. You know, just simple things like focusing development on where the strengths are. I always say my ideal clients are the people that understand the value and know the basics of building good professional relationships already because then I can work with them and move them forward rather than people where they haven't got a clue what it's all about and they don't believe in it. So that's just one example, you know, build strengths rather than plug weaknesses. Absolutely spot on. Well, well, let me, again, can I just go with it? I talk about in the, in the leadership multiplier effect for the American listeners, uh, Daley Thompson, uh, Daley Thompson was a, he's a British decathlete back in the, about the eighties. He won a couple of gold 80s. medals, gold medals and stuff. He was like really cool dude. And he won loads of gold for, for Brit, Britain. And so the decathlon, 10 events, right? And he was legendarily really bad at the last event, which was 1,500 meters. So Daly is short, stocky, muscly sprinter. All of a sudden, like he's got to run three and a half laps as the last event. And apparently, true story, Daly Thompson never, ever, ever trained and practiced the 1500 meters his aim was to to not fall over is to get to the finish line without falling over so he didn't practice it at all he, he focuses is all his training on on the nine events but corporately right if you're sitting down in a business meeting with daily thompson guess where his development plan would have been it would have been yeah. let's improve your 1500 meters all right and he would have got really bad at the other nine things he'd never been a gold medalist if because he's never going to be good at 1500 meters it's like accepting that and he still won gold medals and he was rubbish at 1500 meters but they he put his development into the nine events where he really shone gold medal, training gold people medal. training people to be mediocre yeah exactly <laughs> yes. i i'm i'm very conscious of time because i know that you've got a webinar to get off to to deliver so I've got one last question for you, and I'm, I'm springing it on you. I did mention it without telling you the question beforehand. I mentioned Paul McGee earlier. I exchanged messages with Paul this morning, partly because of this and partly because both our teams won last night. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder uh, again. Yeah, yeah, just had to dig that in again. And I said to Paul, I said, you've written a book together, you're good mates. I said, I'm interviewing your good friend, Andy, in a couple of hours. What's the one question I should ask him from you? So the question from Paul is, what is an idea that you had 10 years ago that has changed or evolved? Crikey me, an idea that I had 10 years ago that's changed or evolved. It's not very exciting, but my take on psychological safety, I think, has changed over the last 10 years because I didn't really understand what psychological safety is like a really big deal. 
like almost the, we describe it like the skeleton key that unlocks everything. And I used to think that psychological safety was a bit of mumbo jumbo. And, and I think I've changed over the last 10 years to understand that psychological safety essentially is the key to everything. Because it's about the question is, is it safe to rock up at work as yourself? And it's quite a big revealing question as your true self with all the baggage and everything. And I like that. I like that. So I think maybe it's not the most exciting answer, but I think I've come a long way in my rethinking of what psychological safety truly is. Brilliant. Thank you. I didn't know how quickly you could come up with an answer to that. And you did. So that's great. I, I love the question. I'm going to post it on LinkedIn just to see what other people say, because I think it's a really interesting one to ask. Maybe I'll use it again in the podcast as well. Andy, we are sadly pressed for time. This could go on for, for so long, but then you have a wealth of books for people to dig into if they want to find out more of your thinking. So let's call this the teaser into the world of Dr. Andy Cope. I've really appreciated you joining me. Thanks for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast and particularly this morning, which must be so tough for you. <laughs> thanks mate thanks for having me and it has been a tough morning with derby county going on yeah but i've bounced back already i'm smiling there we go hopefully my company has been part of part of that thank you so much to andy for joining me <clears throat> there, there were so many areas that we could have focused on i think that focus on the positive psychology piece made sense to me and and it leads into everything else that andy talked about in terms of being brilliant in terms of leadership and, and making an impact in the right way on people. So just diving into that and that Desmond Tutu story about why don't we just focus on what's going on upstream rather than constantly dragging people out of the water is perhaps a key takeaway from this because it applies to so many things that we come across in our lives and in our work. So thanks to Andy for joining me. I hope that you've enjoyed that listening to that. If you have, Please share it. Please join us in the conversation on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and drop me an email if you'd like, if you've got any thoughts or questions, andy at lapata.co.uk. And whatever you do, join us again next week for another episode of The Connected Leadership. Thank you for listening to The Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.